Yo, everyone. Well, you've made it. It's the newest Nasty Pasty podcast episode, our 70th, in fact, in which I, Andy Roberts, waffle my way through a pair of horror or exploitation films, which at one point in recent history would have been considered obscene in this country. Or even today, who knows? If you're just happening upon this podcast for the first time, what happens here is that we look at films that were released in the periods of 1960 to 1990, which is where the infamous video nasties were drawn from. This bizarre oddity in British history is actually a colloquial term for any horror film on VHS that was considered by the authorities to be extremely violent, in bad taste, contain obscene imagery, or be generally unfit for viewing by the general populace, with a big emphasis on children. As the video market was free from the oppressive censor, unlike the cinema chains, a bunch of right-wing busybodies who wished to keep Britain pure and untainted by video filth campaigned long and hard against this new contagion in their midst. Eventually, they whipped up a frenzy that had video dealers arrested for selling the evil dead, children's parties being criticised for even having a video recorder present, and foolish MPs to declare that video violence was even affecting the country's dogs. The government aided and abetted the hysteria by publishing lists of films which the police could legally seize from distributors, charging them with distributing obscene articles if need be. After Parliament passed a bill outlawing any films which the BBFC had not certified before release, the nightmare, at least on the surface, appeared to be over. But the UK, though, suffered the worst blight of video censorship for a long time, and only since the mid to late 2000s have the rules actually been relaxed enough to allow us to see what we want without censorship. This is where I'll now take over, as I take a look at the films of this era that escaped legitimate prosecution by the police, though highlighting my surprise, as a lot of these should have really been obscene by default, based on the DPP's yardstick. It's been a long journey on the Nasty Pasty. We've been going since September of 2017, and unfortunately all journeys have to come to an end. Today's episode is our second to last episode ever, and we're in the midst of our final Extreme 4 episodes, showcasing significantly amped up material of dubious natures. We've done the necrophilia, we've been all sexy with Emmanuel, and today is keeping with those strong themes of sex and death with two pornographic horror films. From our favourite sleazemeister Joe D'Amato, today's two offerings contain some strong bloody violence, mutated killers, zombies and full hardcore pornography. What a winning combination, right? The most extreme of both worlds in one film. We've got 1981's Porno Holocaust and 1980's Erotic Nights of the Living Dead to discuss for you today. And while pornography is a major theme of today's selections, I'm pretty sure I don't need to explain exactly what pornography is. You can all breathe a sigh of relief as I'm not going to delve deep into that subject. Instead, let's just get on straight away with our first example, Porno Holocaust. Just before we begin, however, a quick apology as I couldn't actually find any decent rippable dialogue tracks in English. So our book ends this week are just musical numbers, I'm afraid. Thank you. 
A sea captain called O'Day drives to the docks ready to commandeer a ship, which his deckhand Jacques is nervous about as the journey will involve civilians. Arriving at the hotel of his esteemed guests, it's revealed that the party he's transporting are scientists wishing to travel to a remote island for a project. He meets Annie, a physicist, and Countess Dauphine, a zoologist who's also going on the trip, but is interrupted by a nosy reporter called Benoit, whom O'Day wishes to keep out of their business. Annie and Dauphine explain their interest in the island, where strange events are rumoured to occur. At the docks, a mutilated body is found, with the locals attributing it to the island, which they believe is cursed with a monster's presence. Meanwhile, another from the expedition, Professor Keller, is playing nookie with his wife, biologist Simone, only to prematurely ejaculate and disappoint her. While shortly after, he joins the leader of the expedition, Professor Lemwan, and engages with a government official, showing them photographs of mutated animals which were reportedly found on the island, as well as the rumours from the locals about the monster. The official explains that the island is now uninhabited after the populace were evacuated after nuclear experiments in the area, which the science team suspect may have led to the mutations reported. Dauphine and Simone have a small tiff over the fact that Captain O'Day has gone out to dinner with Annie, before engaging in sex with each other. Annie and O'Day bond over their meal, whilst an unsatisfied Dauphine visits a brothel in town to get serviced by two black men. After finishing their lobster, the captain takes Annie to the beach for a romantic lounge by the ocean, which she takes advantage of by swimming naked in the sea. Her nudity turns O'Day on, and he strips as well so that they can have sex then and there on the beach. The next day, it's time to set off and the whole team assembles to go on the vessel, followed sneakily by Benoit, the reporter. Lemoine discounts any danger from the radioactivity when asked by O'Day, though Keller stresses that there's a real chance of danger from potential mutations. The boat sets off, with Lemoine and Dauphine insulting Keller for his apparent mood, and Simone explaining that the pair cannot stay on the island very long. The island soon draws into sight as the boat edges closer to the shore, with the passengers being watched by someone hiding in the bushes nearby as they come ashore. Annie begins to get irritated at Dauphine for teasing her about her lasciviousness, while Lemwan uses a Geiger counter and discovers that the radiation levels have dropped to a manageable level. Keller finds that the island is uninhabited, while Annie expands that she hasn't even seen any birds or insects. Simone begins to tease the Countess about her encounter with the black men before seducing her again on a log. Annie finds some living crabs which appear to corroborate the photographs from before, especially as they're meant to be extremely small in size. As O'Day and Annie walk across the beach, they're stalked by the unseen intruder who watches them as they strip and have sex again. Lemwan deduces that life may one day return, but at the moment radiation present in the water would prevent that from happening. Keller asks Lemwan to let him and Simone leave the party temporarily to conduct some studies of their own. On the other side of the island, Simone collects plant samples from the ocean while Keller sets up a tent so that the pair can go to sleep. Simone, however, has alternative plans and entices her husband to drop his pants, having sex against a palm tree. Tired after climaxing, Keller goes off to wash in the ocean, only to be followed by the mysterious Peeper, a heavily deformed native man coated in rags who attacks him and drowns him in the ocean. When Simone goes out to look for Keller, she too is attacked by the monster, who pushes her onto her knees and forces his deformed penis into her mouth, eventually killing her as it bores through her head. Jacques and another deckhand leave the camp to go and gather fruit, and when the deckhand has gathered enough, he's suddenly attacked by the monster who caves his head in with a giant rock. When Jacques investigates the commotion, he too is struck fatally in the face by the monster who bludgeons him with a branch. The members at the camp hear the screams and split up to find any trace of the men, while Benoit is revealed to have followed them to the island and now pursues Annie. Annie, however, stumbles across the irradiated killer, who knocks her unconscious and takes her away, witnessed by Benoit. Lemoine, Dauphine and O'Day fail to turn anything up, while the creature stows Annie in a cave clearing and binds her arms. Hearing Benoit outside, the monster then runs away, giving Annie a chance to snoop through the cave, finding a rucksack containing clothes, both adults and children, and a small journal, written by a man called Antoine, who was on the island at the time of the explosions and decided to hide in the caves with his wife and child. Annie looks and spots two human skulls, presumably the man's wife and child, indicating that the beast is the deformed Antoine, mutated due to the radiation fallout. 
Lemoine discovers that the boat has gone, meaning that they're now trapped on the island, while the monstrous Antoine offers fruit and flowers to Annie, appearing to mean her no harm. Deciding to search the island, O'Day, Lemoine and Dauphine find Keller's and Simone's corpses, noting the signs of sex before Simone's demise, indicating a human perpetrator. O'Day finds the corpses of his men and buries them, but finds Benoit's boat as well, indicating to the others that it's too small for them all to get to safety. Despairing, Dauphine begins to drink until she gets horny enough to proposition the captain, afraid that they'll be dead by the time she gets to have coitus with him. While Lemoine walks away in disgust, O'Day humours the woman and proceeds to have sex with her. After he's finished, he comes across the badly broken body of Benoit, who warns him of the monster and implores him to rescue Annie. Back at the camp, Lemoine fails to notice the monstrous Antoine behind him and is killed when the beast breaks his neck with a fatal headlock. Countess Dauphine is similarly surprised at the beach and knocked out, with the monster raping her as she lies unconscious, causing her to fatally hemorrhage from her genitals. O'Day discovers the carnage and races for the cave, managing to untie Annie and running away before encountering Antoine again. As the mutant encroaches upon them, O'Day fires a harpoon gun into the creature's chest, fatally injuring him, but he nonetheless advances on the captain, intending to stab him. Annie calls him by his name using the info she got from his journal, distracting him enough to cease his advance and drop dead from his injury. Annie and O'Day then secure Benoit's boat and sail away, but not before having sex on the boat one last time. Realising that they've now run out of supplies and are nowhere near land, the pair ultimately rejoice when a ship edges close to them. funny how a film's reputation precedes it and you build up this wild notion of what the film is going to be like to experience. I can remember building up Star Wars The Last Jedi in my mind before I went to see it, and though the story didn't exactly turn out the way I expected, I still enjoyed it profusely. I remember hearing about the reputation of Cannibal Holocaust and actually finding it still quite hard to watch, even though I knew what was coming. And then there's a film like Anthropophagus, which is notorious for its scenes of carnage, but when you actually get to see it, the rather frightless and unbalanced story structure leaves a lot to be desired. This latter example is rather relevant when it comes to today's movie, Porno Holocaust, which, despite all it shows of promise, also leaves a lot to be desired. And when we're talking about what is essentially a porn film, that's a bit of a problem. Shot under the original title of Tilt... Porno Holocaust came about from director Joe D'Amato's visit to Santo Domingo in 1979. After an initial visit in 1978, which bore two films, 
the cannibal film Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals, and the spaghetti action flick Tough to Kill, D'Amato felt a great deal of resonance with the location and decided to return the following year to carry out additional projects. 1979 ended up being a very fruitful year for D'Amato, yielding Blue Paradise and Black Orgasm, both sexploitation flicks, two pornographic horrors, Porno Holocaust and Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, and three hardcore porn flicks, Hard Sensation, Sexy Erotic Love, and Black Sex. Since so many productions were shot at once, the films from this era mostly utilised the same casts, crew members, story elements, filming locations, and they even share some of the film reel sweepings and outtakes of each other. In addition, editing them down into any sort of cohesive product took a long investment of time, which is why it was 1981 by the time Porno Holocaust emerged. It was one of three films produced under the company Crystal Film, and out of the bunch, which also included Sexy Erotic Love and Hard Sensation, Porno Holocaust contains more explicit sex sequences than most of the others. It's mostly a bunch of random hardcore sex scenes, softcore scenes, a few scenes of sexual violence, some bloody killings, and an entire load, stop it, of inane dialogue. Now normally I'm one for pornography with a bit of a plot, but for those of you who dislike that, you're essentially forced into it with this one. Plot-wise, Porno Holocaust is surprisingly set up to be pretty interesting, with a plot concerning a bunch of scientists who wish to study the effects of nuclear experiments on a deserted island, with frequent reports of mutated animals and a strange monster which attacks anyone who comes near. They travel to the location and find the rumours to be true, with freakishly enlarged crabs on the shore and readings of radiation still present in the ocean. Unfortunately, however, the monster rumour is also true, and the team are systematically bumped off one by one by an irradiated madman with a penchant for sexually assaulting women. It's a bit more depthy than you'd expect from a porn flick, but it's very debatable whether it's ultimately that successful, in terms of both pornography or horror. More on that later, but what essentially comes through is just how similar the film is to other Italian films of the same time. Even in terms of Joe D'Amato, the film is essentially a sexed-up retread of his splatter film Anthropophagus, which is one of the infamous video nasties. In both films, a man is reduced to a mute and deformed violent beast due to an accident in which he loses his wife and child. He ends up residing on an island and brutally murdering anyone who comes nearby, kidnapping a lone woman and storing her in his cave hideout, before ultimately being killed by being stabbed in the torso. The plots are so similar that it feels like Joe D'Amato essentially remade the film with added hardcore naughtiness. But it's also not hard to see the similarity, especially in locations, to Fulci's zombie flesh eaters. Fulci's more focused zombie splatter is still very reminiscent in execution, having a small group of people going to an island to resolve a mystery and coming under attack from zombie-like attackers surrounded by tropical exotic locations. Unfortunately, the players here rarely get to exhibit any form of decent performance or any semblance of characterization, despite the plot being very dialogue-heavy on occasion. This essentially comes down to the pornography problem, and the industry has long had a history of not exactly hiring actors who can realistically portray natural characters. The term porn acting is specifically used when performances feel quite rehearsed and wooden, as only their erotic talents are required for such films. More on that later, but first we'll go through the characters that we have, starting with Captain O'Day, who's the first person that we see. He's not exactly a charmer, despite his frequent sexual interactions with women. He's a bit brusque, impatient, and when his deckhand Jacques expresses his opinion that all women are bad luck, O'Day steams right in by saying that because their female guests are scientists, they're going to be monsters by default. And this is the guy who gets the most action in the film, ladies and gents. I assume it's just the sailor's uniform that entices them because he's a bit grotesque as characters go, but it also doesn't help that he looks as stereotypical a porn actor as you can conjure up in your brain from the 80s. Porno moustache? Check. Chest hair? Check. Gold medallion around his neck? Check. Huge member and bushy pubes? Double check. Then you have Dr. Lemoir, played by the recognisable Italian hunk George Eastman, who's got much more of that endearing presence that you'd want from a protagonist. He still does what he can do with the role, looking pretty macho and leaderly, and is at least able to act in a non-pornographic fashion. 
Unfortunately, Eastman wasn't willing to participate in any of the hardcore sequences in any of these films, which I personally felt was a little bit disappointing, mainly because he's always been consistently a good-looking, charismatic actor in most of his stuff, who's inspired many a daydream as to his bedroom prowess. But that's only a personal gripe. The main shame about his appearance here is that he's given so little to do. He doesn't actually appear in too much of the film due to being occluded from most of the sex scenes. And he isn't given too much stuff to do despite being the leader of the project. The one scene I do remember is his eye-rolling at O'Day and Dauphine engaging in some sex before she snuffs it. But apart from that, he's criminally underused, especially because he's dispatched with such ease by the film's antagonistic mutant. The film's deuterogonist, Annie, certainly has a physical presence, played by the extremely pretty and petite Lucia Ramirez. But apart from her looks, there's barely anything to the character other than her rather forward instruction to O'Day, let's stop here and fuck. Ramirez may be able to handle Dick while she's crouched on a sandy beach, but she looks rather vacuous most of the other times that we see her. Case in point being her kidnapped by the radioactive creature, who instead of just outright raping and killing her, actually secures her in his den and offers her token gifts, like flowers and fruit. I mean, I'm not expecting Anne from King Kong here, but she doesn't even look slightly phased by the extreme danger that she's in. She even snoops around and finds the guy's journal, which reveals a little bit of his backstory, upon which he returns and aggressively points at her actions, which to most people would frighten them to a degree. Annie, however, remains as stony-faced as ever, which really only relegates her talents to the adult sections of the movie, which is quite strange when you consider that her character is supposed to be a physicist. She doesn't even get to spout much technical jargon. I don't get it though, Ramirez wasn't this unreactive in Black Orgasm, so the only thing I can assume is that after a year between the filming, she got quite disillusioned with acting completely. Simone is another rather memorable appearance in the film, mainly for her bizarre antics both in and outside the bedroom. The infamous Italian slapping of women returns in this instance, courtesy of a spat between Simone and Countess Dauphine, who squabble over the fact that Annie was able to charm her way into Captain O'Day's pants. Simone retorts with, If you want another, just keep acting like a bitch, while Dauphine simply brands her as a whore. They then proceed to strip each other off and have sex, because, of course, porn. Despite being married, Simone ends up sleeping with Dauphine a few times, as she seemingly can't get her husband to pork her satisfyingly enough. Apart from these sexual shenanigans, though, the biologist is ultimately less integral to the plot than the others, apart from a few moments where she actually notices some sea plant mutations, and she's able to identify some large species of crabs. But giving her bedding frequency, why doesn't that surprise me? Countess Dauphine, the zoologist, is similarly vacuous, though her character is a lot more comedic due to her sex encounters. Not only does she bed Simone out of anger that she couldn't get to Captain O'Day first, she also promptly goes to a brothel in town, apparently unsatisfied with her sapphic fumblings, and she pays for two black studs to give her a damn good drubbing. And don't we all wish that we could do that with impunity? Once the party is on the island, apparently the Countess is still horny, but she rather openly discusses the way that the two black guys have destroyed her nether regions, and she's therefore too tired. Simone, however, entices her once more, and she happily screws her as well. When the danger on the island becomes more and more prominent and hard to ignore, Dauphine whips out a bottle of J&B whiskey, what else, and gets inebriated, sorrowfully begging Captain O'Day to drill her, as it may be the last time that they ever get to do it. Of course, the captain is ready to oblige, but Dauphine's character rarely achieves anything memorable above that. It is funny, especially as she seems to be a countess for no real narrative reason, and the fact that she just wants dick whenever she's feeling uneasy or nervous. Professor Keller is perfunctory to the extreme in the screenplay, only present to have two minor softcore gropings, and then to get killed. Oh, and to also have a conversation with a government official about the island. Even the background deckhand Jack has more of a character than him, albeit a misogynistic one. Then we get to be what should be the most interesting character of the lot, the monstrous Antoine. A family man before the island was experimented on with nuclear weapons, he lost his wife and child to the disaster, but somehow managed to remain unscathed. 
except being present on the toxic soup of an aisle, has irreversibly mutated him, giving him large facial growths, stunted speech, and a violent temperament which spills into the sexual when he encounters a woman. There's nothing you really get from the character himself as he's merely a malevolent presence, so we glean more from him by observing his actions and through the discovery of his journal by Annie. Though the majority of his time is spent brutally killing those around him, Annie seems to be the exception. The fact that he keeps the skulls of his wife and child with him and his acts of offering food and flowers to Annie suggests that he's retained some rudimentary feelings of reminiscence and memory of his family. The fact that Annie is black may bring forth memories of his wife or daughter, so he tries to treat her with kindness rather than with violence. I'm going to go with the daughter, though, here, as he specifically chooses not to interact sexually with her. The other women that he encounters are not so lucky. Simone is penetrated in the mouth by Antoine's irradiated phallus to the extent that her dead body later has blood flowing from her mouth, suggesting that the force actually killed her. Even more disturbing is Dauphine's death, who's knocked unconscious by the beast and then raped. Antoine continually thrusts without ceasing, with barely a different expression on his face. It's almost like the women remind him of the sexual relationship he had with his wife, and out of a longing for that relationship back, he perpetrates these extreme sexual acts, but he cannot regain that sense of connection that he once had. In a different film, this could have been an interesting angle, but in this film, it just comes across a little repugnant, really, especially as Dauphine's corpse has hemorrhaged badly from her genitals, and the fact that her rape is pretty much played for sexual kicks. All in all, while an interesting image... The bad guy here doesn't make a huge impact as he actually doesn't have that much screen time anyway. Coupled with the fact that he dies so basically by getting stabbed with a harpoon and then distracted by Annie makes for a very flat exit of what is supposed to be a terrifying mutant. It just leaves a bit of taste in your mouth and it's not radioactive jizz. Of course, despite this being a horror film, it's essentially pornography that you've sequestered here if you've sought this out. And it certainly doesn't leave you hanging when it comes to blue stuff. Trigger warning here as well, as I'll have to discuss some graphic sex acts, so use a bit of caution for the next few minutes. And I also don't want to sound too robotic, so I'm just going to try and throw in some novel slang terms your way. So prepare to be educated in the Urban Dictionary. Ready? Right. We get Dauphine and Simone fooling around with each other after their brief slapping match with some very heavy softcore carpet munching, there's a brief bit of salad tossing and some hardcore fanning of the fur. Dauphine then gets herself two black studs for a hardcore showing of bishop bashing, a slurping of the gherkin, a brief bit of canyon yodeling and then some standard corking the onion. O'Day and Annie then decide to advance their relationship pretty much 500% in an afternoon by starting with some cunning linguistics, a cheeky digit, switching hammocks, a root toot toot on the sexual flute, before then going to your standard horizontal mambo. Dauphine and Simone can't keep their hands off each other for too long and they reunite for some mutual mumbling in the moss and then your standard caressing and half-arsed kissing that you'd expect from this era of pornography. O'Day and Annie decide to literally interrupt the plot of the film to stop and fuck. I like that idea, spouts O'Day, as they strip off and get right down to business with some favours for a favour, some skull fucking, and then some dipping the stinger in the honey. After hitting the J&B later, Dauphine tempts Captain O'Day into some chroming of one's dome and then just your standard bumping uglies. The aforementioned rape scene also consists of just three positions of oscillating the unmentionables, while the final sex scene between O'Day and Annie, yes, again, features some simple pole smoking before the penultimate planting of the parsnip. These are just the scenes with hardcore, by the way. There's also a couple of very short softcore scenes involving Keller and his wife Simone. Even from a brief overview of the shenanigans that goes on here, though, there's already a few issues that clash a little with the idea of pornography. For one, there's really not much variety in what happens. Captain O'Day and Annie, for example, have three hardcore scenes in the film. And frankly, it's the same acts, the same camera angles, and even the locations are all very similar. Even someone wanting to quickly spank the monkey would be a little amiss not to notice the reuse of material. The structure of porn usually brings some varied performers and different situations to bring that excitement to the viewer. 
watching Mark Shannon's cock and balls going in the same vagina in different places gets boring for even the seasoned masturbator. The rape scene is also majorly problematic for the reason that it's pretty much eroticizing a sexual assault and it gives major mixed messages about how you're supposed to take it. The lesbian situations are generally a little more flaccid due to suffering the usual woman-on-woman problems of European films from this era. Due to the actresses in question probably being heterosexual in reality, there's a notable resistance to the touching and eroticism, but actually this is par for the course in this era of filmmaking. The scene of Dorfine getting action from the two male prostitutes is probably the most accomplished scene porn-wise, but even that manages to seem a little awkwardly filmed. Ultimately, the porn aspect isn't exactly deep throat in terms of quality, and even as a homosexual, I can tell that this film is pretty substandard as porn goes. Then again, this was only the early days of D'Amato's craft, so I'm not going to judge it too harshly. It is in fact the combination of a horror film with porn that is so novel and interesting, but unfortunately, it really doesn't work in any decent way. The main issue is that while on paper the idea of hardcore sex and blood and guts kind of works, in reality the two are polar opposites of each other for attention. If you want to watch porn, you don't really want gory injuries, however tepid as they are in this film, irradiated maniacs and scientists spouting dialogue to bookend the sex scenes. But likewise, when you're trying to get into the nuances of the threadbare plot, it then suddenly stops for a very lengthy hardcore sex scene. The two sections are screaming for equal attention, and neither are accomplished enough to endear you that much. Ultimately, it's a good experiment, and you certainly wouldn't find many films of this combination around. But for me, Porno Holocaust is just far too unbalanced to truly enjoy. Other than the giggling and hilarity that would ensue if you had like-minded individuals around for an adult film night. But other than that, certainly don't whip this one out in front of mum and dad. Dr. Lemoine was played by veteran D'Amato star, the hunky George Eastman, or Luigi Montefiore, as his real name is. We've seen him a number of times on the Nasty Pasty podcast before, like in Stage Fright, Bronx Warriors, Endgame, Hands of Steel, and 2019 After the Fall of New York. Italian actress Dirce Fanari played the role of Simone. She was actually quite a recurring presence in Italian cult films, making appearances in Sister Emmanuel, Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel on the Last Cannibals, Escape from Women's Prison, A Star Crash, Ring of Darkness, and her other movie this week, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. Countess Dauphine was played by Anne Guerin, who'd certainly been in many sexploitation examples in the late 70s and early 80s, such as 1980's Sexy Erotic Love, Hard Sensation, and 1982's Cannibal Love. Annie was played by Lucia Ramirez, whom we've already seen already in Joe D'Amato's Black Orgasm, which we covered last year. She also cropped up in Hard Sensation, and the other film this week, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. Onio Michitoni played the small role of Benoit, who was actually the film's production designer. Lastly, Captain O'Day was played by porn actor Mark Shannon, who'd appeared in a lot of these sex films in the early 80s, such as The Porno Killers, Black Orgasm, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, Hard Sensation, Caligula, The Untold Story, Cannibal Love, and Eleven Days, Eleven Nights 2. In the same vein as last week, the two films that we're covering today were directed by Joe D'Amato, so we really don't need to retread the same ground again. He also did the cinematography on this picture, as was usual in his projects, and like usual, he was assisted in his direction by Donatella Donati, whom we also covered in relative detail on last week's episode. Actor George Eastman also wrote the film, as he was roughly 50% acting, 50% writing in his whole career, though today he's become more favoured towards his writing. Nico Fidenko composed the soundtrack, whom we covered last week as well, as he composed the majority of D'Amato's Emmanuel films. The editing was done by Ornella Michelli, whom we've encountered once before as the editor of Lucio Fulci's haunting Don't Torture a Duckling. Michelli also worked in the same capacity on Fulci's White Fang and The Psychic, and then also Joe D'Amato's Beyond the Darkness, Anthropophagus, Hard Sensation, and her other film this week, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead.
The film's makeup effects were done by Massimo Camaletti, who worked a lot on D'Amato's sex films, like Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, Sexy Erotic Love, and Hard Sensation, before going on to 1989's Casablanca Express and 1991's Blue Tornado. Finally, there were a couple of assistant editors who were noteworthy, the first of which is Joya Donati, who worked in various roles in the late 70s and 80s, like editing on D'Amato's Hard Sensation, she was a script supervisor on Emmanuel in Bangkok, and she was a script continuity consultant on Enzo Castellari's Inglorious Bastards. But lastly, there was Bruno Michelli, who also was the assistant editor on The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire and Don't Torture a Duckling. The film premiered in Italian cinemas in February of 1981, being one of the first films released theatrically to feature hardcore sequences. It was exported to other neighbouring countries like Spain, Germany and France, but while Spain and France released the unsanitised version, the German censors removed all of the hardcore sequences and renamed it Incel de Zombies, which means Island of Zombies, to sell the film as a zombie film. It skipped the UK entirely, not even getting a VHS release during the pre-cert years. Quite frankly, only the softcore version would have had a chance of release anyway. Hardcore pornography was still outlawed in the UK until 1999, when some hardcore sequences were allowed for the first time. It was only after major legal challenges, though, to the release of this material, that hardcore porn was officially legalised in 2000, and has been ever since. Unfortunately, even with hardcore stuff being legal here, Porno Holocaust has not materialised, and from my own opinion, I don't think it will in uncut form anyway. Due to the way that pornography is in the eyes of the law, only specially licensed shops can hold pornography, and certain images are automatically removed due to our censorship laws. Basically, anything that's considered kinky is virtually always removed, like gagging, forceful skull-fucking, drinking urine, any defecation, and even female ejaculation bizarrely, which is even for me, who's not into it, a seemingly natural act. The most important, of course, is any act that's depicted as non-consensual, such as rape, sexual assault, or any act in which consent cannot reasonably be withdrawn. That one scene in Porno Holocaust of the monster raping Dorphine would automatically be gone without question. It's obviously not depicted in an ultra-disturbing way, but the situation itself would be egregious enough for the BBFC to snip it. And I also just don't see a massive rally for this film to get a release here, so my suggestion would be to import it from the US or Europe if you want to actually get your mitts on it. And that was Porno Holocaust. So let's go back in time a little to explore the erotic nights of the living dead.
At a mental institution, several patients wander aimlessly around the exercise yard until one of them, a woman called Fiona, gains access to the basement. Another of the patients follows her and watches as she reunites with another of them patients, a large man called Larry who begins to take her clothes off and have sex with her. The film then goes back in time, showing Larry commandeering a taxi service on a small boat, with a customer named Liz and her husband Mr Ross, who is using the opportunity to fish. Back on the mainland, a rich tycoon called John Wilson finalises the sale of a tropical island at the tourist office and heads back to his hotel where he entices two prostitutes to his room for rampant sex. Larry docks the boat and lets the married couple off in the city while at the same time he notices that Fiona has also arrived in the port. That night on the tropical island, locals begin to light candles around a small idol whilst a mysterious figure in robes stumbles towards them. Grabbing one of them suddenly, the figure is now revealed to be a zombie, which bites his throat out, killing him. Back on the mainland, Mr Ross and Liz are out at a local casino, with Larry at the same place successfully winning at card games, much to the annoyance of his opponent, who draws out a knife but is easily knocked out. After finishing sex with the two ladies, John invites them to the island, which he's travelling to shortly, Cat Island, but the two women flee the room upon the mere mention of it. Larry returns to his boat, only to meet with the mischievous Liz, who seduces him in the cabin. Meanwhile, Fiona has checked in next door to John, and after he invites her in for a drink of champagne, the two also end up promptly screwing. As Liz leaves Larry's boat, she spies a gruesomely deformed man bobbing in the water, whom Larry hits with a boat hook. The body is taken to the hospital, where it's revealed to be in a severe state of decay, while the paramedics muse that it is in fact a cursed creature. While checking out the corpse, the visiting doctor is attacked and has his neck bitten into, the zombie appearing to escape. John and Fiona visit the docks and sequester Larry's services to ferry them to Cat Island, upon which he rewards them of the island's legend, that the living dead walk there whilst under the control of a cat. The couple return to their hotel room for some more fumbling, while John takes in a very risque dance performance in an empty nightclub. Both sets of people are suddenly interrupted by a strange presence appearing as a cat. While back on the island, a mysterious woman explains that she's seen those people who will come to the island soon. In the morning, the party sets off by sailing out of the port with Larry at the ship's wheel, while John and Fiona begin to fondle each other on the deck. As the ship approaches Cat Island, a malevolent cat actually watches them from the graveyard, while the mysterious woman, named Luna, knowingly explains that they're spending the night in the boat. By morning, the three anchor the ship offshore and head inland via a dinghy, with Larry explaining that the island is now uninhabited after the villagers who dwelt here were struck by an earthquake and a disease epidemic. John explains his plans to build a resort on the island as the group walks through the cemetery. Soon, Luna and her grandfather approach the group, explaining that only they live on the island with the dead in the ground. John is rather brusque to them and they silently leave, while Larry and Fiona share an intimate moment on the beach. Just as they're about to make love, a loud noise obliterates the island, suggesting an impending earthquake, and they retreat to the boat, where John discovers that his photographs of the couple only show the grandfather, rather than Luna. Assuming the danger to be over, the group return to the beach with Larry and John going off to take some measurements. A sunbathing Fiona is approached by the mysterious Luna, who seduces her, while a curious Larry asks the grandfather about the strange earthquake, only to be given one of the strange idols from before. Returning to the beach, Larry spots Luna bathing in the ocean and asks her about the idol, only to be told that he has it because he's honest and they won't hurt him as long as he has it. John returns to Fiona and Larry and the group decide to head back to their boat, where John discovers in his photographs that the graves in the cemetery have moved from the previous day. Deciding to head back to the mainland, Larry tries to start the boat only for it to malfunction, leaving them stranded for the time being. As night descends, Larry heads back to the island alone and encounters Luna again and makes love to her in the ocean, unaware that behind him a horde of shambling undead loom on the beach. As he notices them waiting, Luna suddenly dissolves into thin air, leaving him alone with the zombies. As he brandishes the idol at them, they slowly turn away and leave him, causing him to faint. In the morning, Larry returns to the boat and radios for help, 
while John propositions Luna to meet him later that night. The trio then return to the boat for supper, and just after John leaves to go ashore, Larry and Fiona get it on inside the cabin. Looking for Luna, John enters an old abandoned storehouse and finds a lit circle of candles around one of the idols. Picking it up, he tosses it onto the floor, where it suddenly becomes the strange cat, which attacks John. Managing to disengage it, he then finds himself swarmed by the living dead. He gouges one in the eyes, stabs another in the abdomen, and decapitates one with a machete before he's able to escape the shed. He encounters Luna, who immediately seduces him, and being caught off guard, John is killed when Luna bites his penis off, and she continues to watch as the living dead surround his corpse, devouring any remains of him. Larry and Fiona become suspicious when John doesn't return, heading back ashore with a gun, just as more of the living dead emerge from the cemetery grounds. Larry and Fiona discover the empty graves, as well as Luna, who explains that John was killed for his greed and insistence on using money for everything in his life. They're suddenly interrupted by the undead John, whom Larry kills with a bullet to the head. Fiona and Larry head to the dinghy, only to be cut off by zombies who start to emerge from the sea itself. Taking out several zombies with the rifle, the pair rest in some woodlands, only for an emerging zombie to steal the gun from him, forcing them to flee further away. Dodging hordes of the undead, the couple finally reach the old shed which John was attacked in. As the undead pour in, John and Fiona repel them using flaming torches and the small idol, managing to set several on fire as they lose consciousness. By the morning, they're awakened on the shore by a passing helicopter. The events cause them to go mad, and they rip their clothes off and engage in sex, which then flashes forward to the mental asylum, where the orderlies are tearing the pair apart. As they drag Larry back to the exercise yard, in disbelief that the pair could have been responsible for killing John, Larry laughs maniacally, knowing the real truth. I say? After speaking about porno holocaust, there's actually not too much to say about Erotic Nights of the Living Dead. In essence, it's virtually the same film, with the same cast, same atmosphere, same saturation with hardcore sex and gore, and the same zombie-like antagonist, or in this case, antagonists. The only real difference is that it's much more similar to zombie flesh eaters. And Laura Gemser turns up. Unfortunately, this movie is going to get a bit of the short shrift, since chronologically this one was released first, even though the two films were basically shot at the same time. 
Plot-wise, the film is a little more familiar to horror fans for its zombie aesthetic, though just like Porno Holocaust, these elements are locked in constant battle with the film's pornographic scenarios. Ultimately, it makes this film just as much of a chore, unfortunately, but let's just not get too down about it and get down to what's actually in the film. The film was shot at the same time as D'Amato's other Caribbean porn films during 1979 in Santo Domingo. When our protagonists get to the mysterious island, it uses virtually the same set as Porno Holocaust, and the cast is virtually identical, with the exception of Laura Gemser, who's exclusive to this one. The film starts off with a rather lengthy prologue, in which two mental patients meet up for a screwing, and then suddenly the film snaps back in time with little warning, and not even a caption to explain the time difference. I was half wondering whether what I was seeing was actually the future, or the past. Needless to say, this isn't the best start, but much like Porno Holocaust, the plot basically stops at this point to introduce our characters and flesh them out quite literally with liberal sex sequences. There are very occasional insertions of plot points, for example a completely random stranger being bumped off by a zombie on the island, or a zombie being found in the ocean, but most, if not all of these scenes, lead completely nowhere and they seemingly only function to remind the viewer that they're still actually watching a zombie flick. When our characters finally get up out of their beds to advance the story, it's near the one hour mark, and we've not been treated to much zombie action. Unfortunately, it really doesn't improve all that much, and the zombies, while present, seem to be even more rooted in the background than the tropical isle itself. They feel way too much like an afterthought, especially as the film's body count is woefully low at just three deaths by the film's end. Before we go into depths about the film's issues, though, let's talk about the film's characters, which are actually at least marginally better than the more empty-headed dolts of the previous film. A great case in point here is George Eastman as Larry, who's given way more scope to shine as a protagonist and as a character. He's a simple sailor who provides a ferry service from the city to various islands in the area. He seems comfortable enough, gets to meet various exotic women on his travels, and while he has an eye for the ladies, he's not a raving misogynist. Eastman's performance is much more enjoyable here too, as he's frequently thrust into the film's scenarios in a much more pronounced way, while his appearance in Porno Holocaust was perfunctory to say the least. He still doesn't engage in any hardcore sequences, but like Laura Gemser, his increased screen presence kind of makes you forget all about that. John Wilson, however, played by Mark Shannon, is essentially the same guy from Porno Holocaust, except he's traded in the sailor's uniform for a large wad of cash. I mean, let's face it, his generally shitty attitude towards women and high and mighty insistence on flashing his wallet everywhere aren't exactly all that flattering. This is porn, though, of course, so his ranting outside his hotel room, where he shouts, wait a minute, you dumb whores, you forgot your money, doesn't get him criticism. Rather, we get Fiona emerging from her room and being so turned on by his ramblings that she drops everything and visits his room for champagne and shagging. Fiona, in general, seems to have just wandered into the city for no real reason, as she then accompanies John for the rest of the film, even though she's literally just met him for a single evening. It's bizarre, even in a pornographic context, especially as her background is never explored otherwise. Unfortunately, this means that her character probably gets the least amount of building, and she ends up functioning as the mere damsel by the film's end. Though obviously a damsel who engages in a lot of coitus. The character of Liz and her husband Mr Ross are quite peculiar additions to the film, as they pepper the film's beginning quite prominently, but then they simply disappear never to be seen again. Liz has a thing going on with Larry, which was rather interesting, as she both reciprocates his advances and meets up with him for some knocky on his boat. They also both encounter the zombie floating in the water together, but then she simply disappears after this. I found it so confusing because in a film of this kind, she and her husband would have absolutely tagged along and become zombie fodder. Additionally, what a squandering of resources, especially as Lucia Ramirez was perfectly able to handle hardcore sex scenes, which would have at least meant some more extra scenes. It just feels a little uncomfortable that they're not present, especially because the final party that goes to the island only consists of three people. I mean, it's a horror film, not a Japanese RPG. Give me the victims. Luna is the most mysterious and therefore interesting characters of the film, who's seemingly a ghost who can inhabit the bodies of cats to spy on people and order a band of undead husks to attack anyone that she deems unworthy. 
the bizarre relationship that she has with her unnamed grandfather seems to be that he's the arbiter of island visitors, judging everyone by their seeming virtues or vices, and then giving the worthy a small idol that repels the zombies' attacks. While her zombies are clearly supposed to be the film's antagonists, they only manage to achieve two kills by themselves. Luna actually kills John in a very papaya love goddess of the cannibals kind of way, by biting his cock off. I mean, impromptu castrations are always fun in these sorts of films, especially when she allows her undead pets to feed themselves on the guy's corpse. Luna seems to take a shine to both Fiona, whom she has a quick fumble with, and Larry himself, who gets quite a sensuous scene of making love to Luna whilst he's in the ocean. Then of course we have our zombies themselves, who look ripped straight from Fulci's sets with some additional robes and headscarves. They're slow, shambling and suitably decayed, as you'd want from this movie. But not much else really. There's rather confusing and contradictory rules that seem to be established with them. It's explained, for example, that the small idol protects against their wrath, which is why Luna insists that Larry feel blessed to have been given one. But this contradicts the earlier scene when the unnamed stranger is frustratingly trying to light candles around it, only to get killed. Does it only work with candles around it? It certainly seems so, especially as John is swamped in zombies as soon as he removes one from a candle circle. Even more bizarrely, the idol turns into a cat when he strikes it against the floor, so... Is the idol actually Luna? It's incredibly confusing, especially as Larry is able to make the zombies go away on the beach by simply waving the charm in their general direction. So, who knows? Even the fairly universal rule that damaging a zombie's head or decapitating them instantly downs them is also violated when John hacks the head of a zombie off with a machete. The severed head then continues to bite him while on the floor, so where's the zombie rule committee when you need them? It's particularly noticeable later when Larry makes explicit reference to headshots when he has to take out John's reanimated corpse. The zombies also clearly have the whole biting humans turns them to zombies thing too, so why is this not consistent? I mean, yeah, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 had the severed zombie head in the fridge, but we all know that chemical-based zombie viruses are much more unpredictable in zombie canon. This one, however, just sticks out like a swollen penis. We'll then get to the actual money shots, which are noticeably less present than in Porno Holocaust. There's still hardcore stuff, of course, but there's a greater saturation of softcore stuff. Our resident rich player, John, gets his two prostitutes to play with him in the shower with a cheeky hand job and some glands kissing. After a brief segue into other scenes, the trio return with some scenes of double box lunches, some sword swallowing, before the inevitable parting of the Pink Sea. Larry and Liz have their own romantic rendezvous, but apart from a little menage a moi from Liz, the rest of the scene is pretty much softcore. The two prostitutes flee the room after hearing the words Cat Island, only for John to somehow snag Fiona from next door for another bout of medicating the axe wound. One of the oddest, however, is that scene in the lounge with Larry and the sole dancer on stage. The music was incredibly minimal, and then she just decides to strip right there and then, but naked, to proceed to dance seductively with a bottle of champagne, rubbing it between her gooch. But that then goes a step further as she fully penetrates herself with it, letting the cork pop inside her, leaving a frothy mess indeed. There's then an additional three sequences of John and Fiona, with some mid-to-heavy petting in one, some softcore implied fellatio in another, and finally, some softcore thrusting. Fiona later cheekily checks her undercarriage while Larry watches, but that's the last hardcore bit really. The remaining scenes involving Luna and Fiona, Larry and Luna, and then Larry and Fiona in the finale. Try saying all that while pissed, I dare you. They're all restricted to the soft stuff, really. Due to the reduced emphasis on the sexual scenes, it means that there's more emphasis on the flimsy threadbare plot. Since the horror film material is not really that awesome, though, you've got the same problem here as you have with Porno Holocaust. The two avenues of entertainment, of gore and sex, are constantly struggling with each other, but both are so impotent in their performance that there's no real victor, especially the viewer. The sex scenes suffer the same issues as Porno Holocaust. I mean, John literally has two major sex scenes, one after the other, and they're in the same bloody hotel room. Talk about stale meat. And then there's the black magic zombie outbreak on a tropical island that's so flaccidly thought out and executed that you might as well not have bothered. 
Perhaps I'm being a bit too harsh on it, though. There are some genuinely great shots and sequences that pepper the film's overly long runtime. One of which is the moment where Larry and Luna are making love and the undead congregate on the beach. It was actually really effective, with the lighting, the moodiness and the music all symbiotically working together incredibly well. The zombie attack on John in the shed as well is quite interesting, a little like Jess Franco's Oasis of the Zombies. It's quite drawn out, hypnotic and languid, but the tone feels just right, and it also has that severed zombie head biting feet after having their head lopped off. There's even an appearance of J&B whiskey to wink at Italian exploitation lovers. Unfortunately, too much rot is also present that ruins any of this good stuff. The final chase, for example, is unutterably dull and repetitive, and not to mention it goes on forever and ever. Then there's that whole scene of the zombie biting the doctor on the medical table that's just forgotten about, tossed aside like some maggoty nugget. Surely it was supposed to be setting up a Fulci-esque ending whereby Larry and Fiona return to the mainland to find that it's now swarming in the undead. Alas, it was not to be, and it actually irritated me that this was just a dead end. Unfortunately, Erotic Night of the Living Dead is more of the same stuff as Porno Holocaust. It's ultimately a bit of a failure. It elicits little goodwill from its tepid violent bits and curiously unerotic sex scenes, but in conclusion, it's also a bizarre curio that hardly anyone will have seen. Collectors and Italian buffs may want to seek this one out for full collection purposes only, but I doubt that anyone will really love this film at all. The cast situation with Erotic Nights is nigh identical to the structure of Porno Holocaust, as the productions were so similar anyway that good old Joe probably decided to just reuse virtually the same crew and cast. The only difference is the presence of Luna, played by Laura Gempser, whom we've covered extensively in the Emmanuel films that we've covered before. George Eastman played the role of Captain Larry, while Mark Shannon is cast as the architect John. Larry's girlfriend is played by Dirce Fenare, while Lucia Ramirez also returns as the role of Liz. That's about it cast-wise, though. The credits are woefully lacking in details, unfortunately. It's pretty much the same situation with the crew. Joe D'Amato returns to direct and do the cinematography, with the script being written again by George Eastman. The editing was done again by Ornella Michele, assisted by Bruno Michele. The makeup was once again done by Massino Camilletti, and the assistance to D'Amato's directing, again supplied by Donatella Donati. The only differences were the music, which was provided this time by Marcello Giambini, who worked on Joe D'Amato's video Nasty Anthropophagus, as well as the god-awful Panic that we covered on the show just a while ago. Camilletti was also assisted this time in the effects department by Maria Grazia Mazzolini, who later appeared as a makeup artist on both 1986's Fox Trap and the slasher film from Michele Soavi, Stage Fright. Even the release of Erotic Night is starkly similar to Porno Holocaust, having an Italian cinematic release, but lesser releases all over Europe. Again, the UK skipped out on this one, as we simply wouldn't accept hardcore porn, as we were still barely accepting softcore stuff. One major difference, however, is that I'm pretty sure that Erotic Nights of the Living Dead could easily get an uncut release here in the country as an R18 release for adult video shops. I mean, it's porn, sure, but there's nothing really all that contentious in the release, other than a little bit too much boredom. And that's the end of the show for this week, guys and gals. Thank you as ever for dealing with me. I know it must be an utter pain and misery for you. Well, not quite. But thanks anyway for bearing with. This was a little bit of an endurance test, to say the least, but I had fun anyhow. If anyone's a fan of these films, firstly, what the buggering hell. But just kidding, 
Do get in touch if you've got an opinion on these films. I'd love to hear your take on them, negative or otherwise. You can get me at Nasty Pasty Pod on Twitter, or just search Nasty Pasty Podcast on Facebook. A little academic, of course, as unfortunately, guys, it's now finally here. Nasty Pasty's penultimate final episode is next week, finally concluding a project that I've been doing for the last two years. I won't get all emotional yet, I'll reserve that for the actual episode, which is the pinnacle of our extreme final four episodes. Next week's finale is on coprophagia, which is literally the act of eating faeces. Yep, shit-eating and turd-munching abound in our nasty pasty curtain call, featuring the infamous Sarlo, the 120 Days of Sodom, and Wedding Trough, which is also known as the pig-fucking movie. Yeah, they're going to be as horrible as they sound, but I hope to see you there again next Saturday for our last episode. Thanks to everyone again for listening, you're all amazing, and I'll be digging back in your ear canals by this time next Saturday. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.